Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back again, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here. China History Podcast, episode 252. History of Xinjiang, Part 9. We're getting to the end. We're as far as I'm planning to take it. As promised last time, we'll see what was cooking in Xinjiang during the time when the Mongols ruled Asia, 13th and 14th centuries. And then maybe we'll do a fast walk through the Ming as well. Let's see how far we could go before the whistle is blown at the end of stoppage time. We left off last episode on the eve of the Mongol conquest of Asia. When Genghis Khan died in 1227, he left his empire in the hands of his four sons, Juchi, Chagatai, Ergade, and Tolui. And as I mentioned in Part 8, the one we're most interested in as far as this series being all about the history of Xinjiang is the Chagatai Khanate, the one that took on the general size and shape of the Karakitai or Western Liao territories. Remember the Idikut of the Uyghur Kocho kingdom in the north of the Tarim Basin and in Turpan? Well, his name was Barchuk. He was the so-called honorary fifth son of Genghis. Because of his special relationship to Genghis Khan, Barchuk's Uyghur Kocho kingdom reported not to Chagatai, but directly to Urgade's Khanate in Mongolia and Siberia, which also served as the head office for the whole Mongol Empire. And during this period, the Kocho Kingdom is often referred to as Uyghuristan. So this was a built-in point of contention. The kingdom geographically belonging to the Chagatai Khanate, but the Uyghurs took their orders from someone else. That won't last forever. I had mentioned how the Uyghurs in particular, so refined and literate and the true inheritors of the many qualities that made the Sogdians so great? Well, they weren't Mongol. They were Turks. But they were trusted by the Mongol aristocracy to manage so much of the empire's bureaucracy and in other matters where literacy was crucial. The Uyghurs were the most literate and sophisticated of all the peoples of Western Inner Asia. Frederick Mote had said of the Uyghurs, quote, Their broad cultural experience and elements of the several literate high traditions with which they had at one time or another been familiar, as well as their acceptance by nomadic peoples, as kindred people of the steppe, meant they could mediate to others a wide range of religious and intellectual ideas and practical governing experience. End quote. They brought Manichaeism with them to Xinjiang from Mongolia and also played a role in introducing Nestorian Christianity to these parts. And then in the 13th century, they transitioned to Buddhism before the ultimate triumph of Islam in Xinjiang. The other place too important to leave to Brother Chagatai was the city of Khotan. They too were direct reports to the great Khan and not Chagatai. And Chagatai Khan, while he was alive, pretty much followed his father's wishes on this arrangement and didn't challenge Brother Ergade Khan but it remained a bone of contention between the two. Well, I don't want to rehash the whole history of the Mongolian Empire. Chris Stewart, 
at the History of China. It has more than a dozen episodes on the Yuan so far. So go check that out if you want all the details. I'll try and stick to the Xinjiang part only. But if I start meandering, I uh, apologize in advance. Suffice to say, Genghis Khan's best laid plans, leaving his empire to his four boys, eh, didn't turn out the way the great Khan had hoped. I can't count how many power grabs, alliances, and betrayals and wars there were, but 13th to 14th centuries, they sure made our story complicated to tell. And the Mongol and Turkic names aren't so easy to pronounce either. But what an interesting time. For everyone already quite familiar with this history, this can be a refresher course for you. The first bump in the road came in 1251 when Ergate Khan died and the son of Tului, Manke Khan, emerged on top following an unexpected succession struggle. He was the brother of Kublai Khan. Now, unlike his uncle Ergate, Manke Khan was a little more warlike and pugnacious where it came to the Chagatayad and Ergadeid branches of the family. Whereas Ergade respected the wishes of Genghis Khan as far as autonomy for the Kocho Uyghur kingdom went, Manke wasn't so accommodating and went in and took control of this kingdom until his death in 1259. Another power struggle followed uh, Manke Khan's death, no surprise there, and in the shakeout, Xinjiang found itself in the middle of a war between Kublai Khan in the south and brother Eric Borke in the north. Kublai Khan made a few attempts to seize Xinjiang, then in control of the Chagatayids, who also controlled Transoxiana. And these descendants of Chagatai, well, they ended up flipping their allegiance from Eric Borke to Kublai Khan, who was quite determined to annex these strategic lands in Xinjiang. After defeating his brother in 1264... Kublai had to go up against a more formidable foe. The next, bigger-than-life Mongolian Khan, Kaidu, grandson of Ergade, which made him the great-grandson of Genghis Khan. Not a bad bloodline to have for anybody with ambitions in that empire. In popular world history, Kaidu Khan is perhaps most remembered as Kublai Khan's constant foe for three decades. In the late 1200s, as these two great powers, Kublai and Kaidu Khan, battled, the area all around Beshbalik, the capital of the Kocho Uyghur kingdom in Xinjiang, well, the place became like a no-man's land, caught in the middle of this epic Kaidu-Kublai struggle that lasted from 1268 to 1301. Beshbalik and other parts of Xinjiang were wrecked by Kaidu Khan's armies and those of the Chagatayids he also controlled. But in 1301, after three decades at the top, Kaidu Khan passed from this earth, dying with his boots on during a failed attack near Karakoram. While he was alive, however, Xinjiang fell under his sphere of power and remained part of the Chagatai Khanate. Kublai Khan's dynasty, try as they did to add Xinjiang to their empire, had to settle for only the easternmost portion, the part just beyond the Gansu Corridor. As far as how the Uyghurs fared under the Mongols, well, many of the Uyghurs of the Kocho Kingdom, under pressure from these Chagatayids, fled east to seek relief from Kublai Khan and the Yuan Dynasty. From 843 to 1132, the Uyghurs had built a most splendid kingdom in this corner of Xinjiang, 
1132, they had to grovel a little and become vassals of the Karakitai, but remained highly autonomous. In 1209, as I said, the Itikut Barchuk signed up with Genghis Khan, and although vassals of the Mongols, the Uyghurs again enjoyed special treatment compared to the other conquered lands. These were some of the best times in recent memory for the northern portion of the Tarim Basin and in Turpan. But starting in the late 1200s, as the Kaiduk-Hublai Wars raged, this Kocho kingdom ultimately fell to the Chagatai Khanate. By the close of the 14th century, the last of the Uyghurs, with their Manichaeism and Buddhism, had converted to Islam. But not altogether, not at the same time. The oases of the Turpan Basin continued to hang on to their long and great Buddhist tradition that went back to the 4th century days of Kumarajiva. Buddhism in Turpan lasted well into the Ming Dynasty, but by the 16th century, there in Turpan, the last traces of Buddhism disappeared. Following Kaidu Khan's death, the Chagatai Khanate went through a period of violent struggles for succession, and the Khanate began to break up into bite-sized pieces. Another brick in the wall, as far as advancing the Islamization of Xinjiang and the rest of Central Asia, followed in the wake of the Chagatai Khan Tarmashirin. His life and his brief four-year reign from 1331 to 1334 are subject to some disagreement. Details are open to interpretation. Tarmashirin was mostly remembered for his campaign to conquer northern India and as the Chagatai Khan who converted to Islam and became, I guess you could say, a kind of religious zealot. And during his reign, tolerance for other religions became a thing of the past, and his policies aggressively encouraged the spread of Islam through the Chagatai Khanate. Now, he wasn't the first Chagatayid Khan to convert to Islam. That was Mubarak Shah. But he was definitely the one responsible for firing up the spread of this growing faith during the 14th century. Tarmashirin's actions also caused the Chagatai Khanate to fracture as the Buddhist and Christian and other non-Muslim faithful up in Transoxiana and the Ili region rose up against Tarmashirin. The end result of this upheaval was that the Khanate split into eastern and western parts. The western half comprised the traditional lands of Transoxiana and continued to brand themselves as the Chagatai Khanate. Timur, or Tamerlane, well, he came from this portion of the former Chagatai Khanate. Now, the ones we're concerned with is the eastern portion. This became known as Mughalistan. We've all heard of the Mughal Empire in India. Mughal was the Arab or Persian pronunciation of Mongol. So the eastern portion of Mughalistan covered the Turpan and Tarim basins north of the Tian Shan the lands once called Uyghuristan, and site of the former Kocho Uyghur kingdom, as well as portions of Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. There was one particular Mughal clan, the Duglats, who dominated the politics and power plays in Xinjiang during this Mughalistan period. The Mughal Khanate, or Mughalistan, again, Istan, that's Persian for land, Mughalistan, the land of the Mongols, though They themselves did not call it that. Now, these Mongols differed from those in the western part of the Chagatai Khanate. The ones who ended up in Mogalistan, 
were more traditional and nomadic in their makeup, the ones who more embraced their Mongolian culture, which, of course, was a steppe culture. They were slower to embrace Islam. They went their own way, in part due to their resistance to abandoning their age-old faiths and giving in to the aggressive measures Tarmashirin had set in motion. But Islam did, of course, make its way into Mughalistan. Just like with Constantine the Great in the early 4th century, all it takes is one strong ruler to sign on. In this case, it was Tughlaq Timur. From 1347 to 1360, Tughlaq Timur was the Khan ruling in Mogolistan. He owed his position to the Duglat Mughals, who acted as the Khan makers of their day. And he was the one who ran this eastern part of the Chagatai Khanate that he molded into a Khanate called Mogolistan. And after Tughlaq Timur gave all the Mughal princes an offer they couldn't refuse, converting them to Islam first, and with the ruling family and aristocrats taken care of, then Islam was rolled out across the rest of Xinjiang. And after his conversion to Islam in what uh, I said was still a predominantly Buddhist land, Tughlaq Timur campaigned against the Western Chagatai Khanate and was able to reunite East and West into a single Chagatai Khanate. But this reunited Khanate it only hung in there as long as Tughlaq Timur remained in power. And this conquering Khan passed in 1363, five years before the great hero from Chinese history, Zhu Yuanzhang, did what was once thought to be unthinkable, putting an end to the Mongol Yuan dynasty. And then, of course, he went on to establish the Ming dynasty in 1368. So Tughlaq Timur, he was another one-hit wonder. And as far as the reunited Chagatai Khanate, well, after he went, so went the unified entity. Mogalistan rallied here and there, but truthfully, they never got it together after Tughlaq Timur passed from the scene. The Duglats were still the power brokers at this time, and they put Tughlaq Timur's son on the throne, who also championed his father's same cause of converting all of the former Uyghuristan into a Muslim land. And with the exception of the parts of Turpan and Kocho, now called Karakhoja, from about midway through the 15th century, Xinjiang, for the first time in its long history, was a Muslim land. And the notion of allowing the Uyghurs to manage their own lands under the watchful eye of the Mongols, well, that too was done away with. Another reason Mogulistan didn't rally after Tughlaq Timur was that Right around the time he died, something that would end up just as big as the Mongol Empire was starting to coalesce around what many historians say was the greatest conqueror since Genghis Khan, and perhaps the greatest of all time. And this was Tamerlane, or Timur, from which we get the term Timurids. Timur and the Timurids of his empire were Muslim. He had a somewhat tenuous link to the Chagatai line, and in all he did, Timur saw himself as the heir to Genghis Khan and the restorer of the Mongol Empire that had faded from so much greatness. As soon as he didn't need the Chagatayas anymore as a legitimizer, he sidelined them and became the next uberpower of Central Asia. 1370 to 1405 were the dates of Tamerlane's reign, and the empire he founded survived him for a century, 
falling to the Iranian Safavid dynasty in 1507. Tamerlane was born not far from Samarkand, so the country of Uzbekistan gets to claim him as their own. One of the 14th, 15th century changes happening and worth knowing about, and Tamerlane is usually held up by historians as having personified this, was the emergence of what was called the Turco-Mongol tradition. Tamerlane and the Timurids, well, the people he came from and who came after him, they were Turkic-speaking Mongols, or in some sources they're referred to as Turkified Mongols. The Mongols, through their expansion into these lands, long ago Turkified, going back to the Turks in the 6th century, became one with them in language, in their newly shared Islamic faith, and in many other aspects of their culture they brought with them from the steppes of Mongolia to Central Asia. They spoke a language called Chagatai Turkic. The population of Mongolia today was only 3 million or so. And way back in the day, their numbers also weren't that big either. And they spread themselves out pretty thin, building an empire as large as theirs. So the emergence of this Turco-Mongol tradition in Central Asia was something that happened when Mongol and Turkic ways sort of blended into something new. And Tamerlane was a shining example of these Turkified Mongols. And he was expending a lot of effort to seize Mogolistan. Tamerlane tried several times, and this led the rulers in Mogolistan to reach out to the Ming imperial court and ask for some possible relief. Although he'll die trying, Tamerlane had his sights on China as the ultimate prize for his growing collection of conquests. And had he not died when he did, he might well have succeeded. So this period saw Mogolistan cozy up to China, and the Chinese imperial court had plenty of past experience when it came to insinuating themselves into the labyrinthine politics of these people beyond China's traditional borders. Trade began to flow in both directions, and Mogolistan saw a sharp increase in wealth, once again flowing in from these lands from the east. But Mogolistan didn't last that much longer. Besides the Timurids, there were also new powers that were making themselves known just beyond the borders of Xinjiang, and these were the Kazakhs and the Uzbeks. They, too, put a lot of pressure on Mogolistan. Also around this time, well, it's not really relevant to our story, but the Mughal Empire was established down in India. The founder, Babur, was a descendant of Tamerlane. He reigned 1526 till 1530. And this Mughal Empire... I'm sure you've all heard of it. It lasted for 331 years, all the way into the 19th century. Falling hard in 1857, thanks to the Indian Rebellion of that year. And of course, famously, with a little help along the way from the British East India Company. The Mughal Empire met an ignoble end in 1857. The British Raj, playing the role as the Terminator... James Millward named four developments that manifested themselves during this Mogalistan period in Xinjiang. In no particular order, these being the emergence of new powers like the Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, and the Oirat Mongols. And these particular Mongols will become central to our story pretty soon. The next major development was the revival of trade links with China, Transoxiana, and India. By this time in history, the Silk Road 
had pretty much served its purpose in world history. Since the days of the Western Han Dynasty, it had played a significant role in changing the world through commerce and as a kind of market where ideas were exchanged. But by the 15th century, navigation on the high seas was not such a big deal anymore. People did it all the time and over very long distances now. Sea trade had replaced a large amount of these caravans that had plied these ancient silk roads since time immemorial. In most cases, sea trade was cheaper, more efficient, and you didn't have to worry about feeding and watering camels, or getting spit on or bit by them. The third development mentioned by James Millward was the decline and disappearance of the Chagatai Mughals. The last Chagatayid Khan was killed around 1346, and without this great legitimizer around to prop up any would-be cons, it led to even more fighting and instability in the region. And the last major development happening around this time was the unstoppable growth of Islam as the religion of choice for most of Central Asia and the Near East, and the rise of these Islamic kingdoms, states, and empires as major political forces. Let me quickly mention another footnote from these times in Xinjiang. This was the Karadel Kingdom. Serious scholars of this time call the Karadel Kingdom, well, more than a footnote, but since we don't have all the time in the world to dwell on every aspect of the history of Xinjiang, I hope you can at least get a whiff or a small taste of some of the things that were happening. After the fall of the Mongol Yuan Dynasty in 1368, remnants of the former royal house led by a prince named Gunasheri reconstituted themselves up in Mongolia, and kept the Yuan alive. And this successor dynasty to the 97-year-old dynasty founded and made great by Kublai Khan, because it was relocated to the north in Mongolia, perhaps for lack of a better idea, was called the Northern Yuan. It lasted from 1368, the year of Zhu Yuanzhang's triumph in founding the Ming Dynasty, all the way to 1635, when they were taken apart by the later Jin dynasty. And of course, we know the later Jin by the name that they took on later after they conquered China in 1644, namely the Qing dynasty. And these were the Manchus. So this prince, Gunashiri, after falling on the wrong side of a succession struggle, he left the confines of the northern Yuan, which was more or less most of Mongolia, and he headed west like so many nomads of the steppe before him. Why did they always go west? Well, north was too cold. To the south was China. Not recommended to take them on unless you were fully flanged and ready for action. East of Mongolia, like I said, the Jurchens, very rough people. So it was most often in a westerly direction where these Turks and Mongols and Kitans went. That's why they ended up in such great numbers in Xinjiang and beyond into the, into the stands of Central Asia. So Gunasheri ended up in Hami, northern Turpan Basin. And in 1389, he set up this kingdom there, still heavily Buddhist. Remember, Turpan Basin, this was the last place in Xinjiang to sign up for Islam. Gunasheri, he was a Chagatayid. That is, he had all the necessary paperwork and provenance to claim kinship with Chagatai Khan. Genghis Khan's number two son. So this kingdom that he set up was called the Karadel. That lasted 124 years, 1389 to 1513. After Gunasheri passed from the scene, 
What followed was a plethora of competing rulers, some chosen by the Northern Yuan and some by the Ming court. So in a familiar story that we've seen so many times already, a benign state was set up in Xinjiang and eventually they got caught up in a struggle between two great powers, one of them usually being China. The Karadel Kingdom was one such entity. First, they kept in the good graces of Ming Dynasty China, and then in the 1430s, they switched their loyalties to the Oirat Mongols. And in a bit, I'm going to get to the Dzungars. These were Oirat Mongols who, during the Qing Dynasty, are going to butt heads with China in a very violent and profound way. Being caught in between all these powerful forces around them eventually led to the end of the Karadel Kingdom. It had been, in the 16th century anyway, almost the last bastion of Buddhism in Xinjiang, Kocho and Turpan. But in 1513, after years of constant succession struggles with the Oirats and the Chinese competing to keep their proxies in Karadel at the top, in the end, Karadel was absorbed by Mogalistan and then promptly Islamized. Let me also mention between 1514 and 1705, almost 200 years down in the southwest of uh, Xinjiang, the traditionally more ironic part, there was the Yarkand Khanate. Yarkand is another one of the ancient cities from that region. Today, Yarkand is part of Kashgar Prefecture, and being located next door to Kashgar, these two places were always part of the same history going on in this part of Xinjiang, and thrived on and off for eh, a couple thousand years, down on the south rim of the Tarim Basin. At its peak in the late 16th, early 17th century, the Yarkon Khanate controlled almost the entirety of the Tarim Basin east of the Hushi Corridor. And this land would, in the Qing Dynasty, be known as Altashar, and it would be fought over viciously by the Qing armies, and the local inhabitants of the region. The Archon Khanate was sort of a rump political state of what once remained of the mighty Chagatai Khanate. So it sort of allowed the last vestiges of the Mongol Empire to live on just a little bit longer until this political state from the Ming and Qing dynasties is taken over by the next group of conquerors that I'll introduce in a minute and look at more closely next episode in Part 10. These were the Zungars. You've probably heard of them before in previous episodes. They were the nemeses of the early Qing emperors and warred with them constantly. Let me just give a brief intro to the Zungars, and then we'll slip the bookmark in, as we always do, around the 25 or 30-minute mark, and then we'll finish things off in the next episode. The Zungars... They were one of the bigger of the main tribes of Oirat Mongols. And as we saw all the time in those lands nestled between China and Siberia, from time to time, some charismatic unifying leader appeared on the scene and used his ways to get everyone on his side and then lead soldiers into battle. The Oirats, it was sort of a catch-all term for the Western Mongols, who called that part of Asia where Siberia, Kazakhstan, northern Xinjiang, and westernmost Mongolia all sort of come together. This was their homeland. To the east were the Khalkha Mongols, the group who made up the biggest numbers of Mongol people. The Oirats were also called Kalmuks. And, l- and let me just say, the Dzungars had more ways to spell their name than Muammar Gaddafi. The Dzungars 
parted ways with these occasional nomadic conquerors like Genghis Khan. They weren't looking to build an expansive empire. They were looking to build a strong state right where they were, in their home base of Zungaria, Zungarian Basin. Arumchi is there, the present-day capital of Xinjiang. Haven't mentioned that place. It's a two-hour drive northwest of Turpan, on the other side of the Tianshan. The Zungarian Basin is in the north of Xinjiang, nestled in between the Tianshan to the south and the Altai Mountains to the north. In the early 1600s, a new Oirat confederation was starting to take shape. And in a similar example, going back to Modu Chanyu and the Xiongnu of the 2nd century BCE, the Dzungars coerced and cajoled all their fellow Oirats to join together as one. And this Dzungar state that arose during the 17th century, they did an admirable job combining herding animals, farming, mining, and trading, first with Russia and after moving to Xinjiang, with China as well. Not since Genghis Khan had the Mongols look so good. And when the Zungars are vanquished later on, they'll be the last of these Eurasian steppe empires. And as the Qing dynasty got off to its blazing start in the 1640s, they cast a wary eye in the direction of the Zungars. The Qing emperors were all Manchus, and they knew these Mongols much better than the Ming rulers. Manchus and Mongols were different people, different branches of the Altaic language family, and occupying different parts of the Eurasian steppe. But they were still kindred people of the steppe, and they had more in common with each other than the Han Chinese did. So the Manchu-Mongol relationship was different, and we'll see how the Qing used the Mongols for a lot of the heavy lifting at the start of the dynasty when Xunzhi, Kangxi, Yongzheng, and Qianlong were leading the glory years of the Qing dynasty. Though they understood them much better and had a different attitude towards them than the Ming rulers did, that didn't mean the Qing didn't watch them closely. The last thing the Qing dynasty wanted was another Genghis or Kublai Khan. So they managed their Mongol relationships very carefully and used the same old yi 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 system of using barbarians to control barbarians method that always seemed to work so well in the past. The Qing got close to a few Mongol tribes, most notably the Khalkha Mongols, but they made sure they didn't pose any kind of political or military threat to the dynasty. The Manchus were few, and the Mongols were many, and the Han Chinese were even more numerous. And the Qing rulers were always aware of that and needed to maintain just the right balance through the alliances they made. But the Tsungars did manage to consolidate their state, and like it is always, all it took was a strong leader to emerge. And for the Tsungars, this was Galdan. We've heard that name before in previous episodes. The main nemesis of the Kangxi Emperor. Those two are going to learn to hate each other like nothing else. The Dzungars were Tibetan Buddhists, and I'm going to try like crazy to not drag Tibet into the story, even though their history was all tangled up in what was happening in the Dzungar Khanate. During a 1640 Kuraltai, or Grand Council, the Dzungar leaders called for Mongols to unite under their state and to return the Mongols to their former greatness and respectability on the steppe. Around this time, just at the founding of the Qing Dynasty, Galdan was born. 
As a young prince, he spent several early years as a monk down in Lhasa and was later called back to Dzungaria, where the Khanate was, what else, enveloped in a good old-fashioned succession struggle. To simplify a complicated explanation with a lot of difficult names to remember, Galdan emerged on top of this struggle and by the late 1670s was firmly in control and ready to bring the Dzungar Khanate to the next level. Into the early 1680s, Galdan's military was able to take over all of Xinjiang and also expanded into parts of Kazakhstan and the Fergana Valley. These same places have been fought over since the earliest days of recorded history. Even though Galdan was not of the Jingasid line, he was able to get special dispensation from the Dalai Lama to formally use the title of Khan. And then all throughout the 1680s, Galdan went on an acquisition spree to bulk up his Tsungar Khanate and in the process caused the Kangxi Emperor to lose no small amount of sleep. And one of the goals this long-reigning emperor had was to delineate where Tsungar, Russian, and China borders began and ended. Kangxi was the first Chinese emperor who had to deal with Tsarist Russia. Ever since the 1500s, Russia was racing in the direction of Vladivostok, which still had a long way to go before it was actually founded. But the Russians were already moving full speed ahead as if it were already there. This is all part of CHP episode 181 on the early years of Sino-Russian relations. So the 1689 Treaty of Nerchinsk was meant to not only settle border issues, but in the process isolated Zungar so they couldn't turn to Russia for anything. And it's this dearth of allies in that part of Inner Asia that will always stymie the Zungars in their epic battle with the Qing Empire. And after the borders were settled, the Kangxi Emperor absorbed about 140,000 Kalka Mongols who suddenly found themselves no longer part of the Zungar nation. Their lands were now part of the Qing Empire. They were going to come in handy as a club to wield against the Dzungars. Okay, let's hit the kill switch right here. I'm just roughly calculating what remains to be said and finishing this series up next episode. It's going to be an iffy proposition at best, but whoever heard of a podcast series going 11 episodes? That's a strange number for a series. So much more to go yet. Well, one more time, please consider supporting the CHP at patreon.com slash China History Podcast. Three bucks a month, that's all I'm asking. A few thousand more of you sign up, I can get out of the patio furniture business. Until we meet again, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the city of Los Angeles, California. You all know where you could find me in two weeks, and it's nothing less than my greatest hope that you'll join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.